You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Dr. Richard Farnham. I wanted Dr. Farnham on the on the podcast today because of his medical expertise and to get his perspective on where things are at with the whole coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but first, a quick background on him. Dr. Farnham is the world's leading expert on intraoperative urinal fluorescence imaging, which don't worry about it. I don't know what that is either, it's, but it sounds very impressive. He's completed his residency training at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, which is world-renowned, and is a practicing urogynecologist specialist in El Paso, Texas, where he lives with his wife, Nanda, and their four children. He is one of the nation's leading experts in surgical robotics and is a renowned professional speaker and surgical instructor and mentor. He holds two clinical associate professorship appointments at Texas Tech and Burrell College of Medicine. He is one of a handful of accomplished gynecologic surgeons who have performed over 2,500 robotic surgical procedures, which I know nothing about this field, but just watching what he does on YouTube is mind-blowing to see the robotic um, surgeries. It's fascinating. Um, He is a reviewer of the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology and is also a published uh, author on robotics in multiple peer-reviewed journals. There's much more to uh, his resume, but I'm going to leave it at that, presuming that you understand that he knows what he's talking about. Uh, and uh, it's an honor to have him on the call today. There is a lot of really great information in this to give us a grounded and I think somewhat positive outlook on where things are at, um, all things considered. So here I am with Dr. Richard Farnham. All right, I'm here with Richard Farnham. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to be on the call. I know you've got a lot going on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, I wanted to speak to you because uh, I think it's just been super helpful to connect with other medical professionals during this uh, coronavirus and get your take. This is obviously, um, I should probably mention, today is April 16th, 2020, the date of the recording. and uh, I'd love to just first and foremost get a little bit of your background so people understand your, your medical expertise, and uh, then we can kind of get into what you're seeing and, and talk about some other things as well. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi. So the, I'm Richard Farnham. I'm a physician in El Paso, Texas. I'm a board-certified urogynecologist, so it's kind of like urology for women. Um, I'm on the governing board for my hospital um, here in El Paso and also the director of robotic surgery, which is kind of um, one of my uh, passions, uh, just a way of doing minimally invasive surgery. So I have a blog that I do talking about different um, uh, things that are helpful for uh, just general health considerations and surgery, women's health. Um, And as this is a topical issue, we, we tackle a lot of topical issues and this is really right at the top of the heat, this COVID-19 situation. So I've been doing a lot of blogs on that. And, and uh, we had talked the other day and, and um, I thought this would be a great opportunity um, really to have almost like a follow-up for your last interview that you did with Dr. Uh, Dalmia, which I thought was very informative. Yeah, fantastic. So l- give us a, an update on where things are at from your perspective. Um, are, are we making any headway? First and foremost, like, are we on the downswing yet in your mind? Um, have we reached peak, you know, and are we, are cases coming down? Um, do, is there anything on the horizon as far as a, a vaccine or anything of that nature? 
And what are we to expect? You know, some people are talking about a second wave. So those are some of my primary questions, but what is your take? Where, what's your perspective on where things are at right now? So yes to all of those things. So (laughs) what I'll I'll try to do is I'm going to try to share uh, all of the evidence-based medicine, understanding that um, this is a totally new thing for everybody. And even the experts are frankly changing their mind every day. We'll have uh, a mandate that says you don't need to wear masks. And then the next day, the CDC says everybody's got to wear masks. So even, even the, the experts are, are changing their mind. But um, as far as what the numbers show, where we actually are uh, compared to where things were you know, a month ago, which is um, uh, you know, the last interview you had done uh, with a physician, is that we are uh, – past the peak in globally and we're now kind of starting to come down so if there's any number of different references you can use for this but um, there's the worldometer website and then there's the john hopkins website but if you look at those you'll see that the number of so we are on an exponential incline for um, most of the end of march and into early april And now, uh, having enacted the preventative measures, which we can talk about around the world, and particularly in the U.S., uh, we've seen a plateau where um, there are not, uh, the number of new cases aren't growing. And then here in the last three or four days, we're actually seeing a fewer number of cases than there were the day before every day. So the measures are working. as a, as a city, as a country, as a world, we've um, uh, been able to kind of fight back and we've been able to kind of put this uh, novel virus on pause. Um, so now what, right? So that's the big question. So what we're doing is working as far as health, as far as reducing the number of infections, as far as flattening the curve, as far as not overwhelming the healthcare systems. Okay. Um, but there comes a cost and um, you know, I'm not an economist, I'm not a politician, so I, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of try to stay in my lane, but certainly, um, you know, unemployment numbers are uh, at an all-time, uh, applications for unemployment, I should say, are at an all-time high. Um, over the last eight years, we, you know, the, as a country, we've done a great job of reducing unemployment from eight to four percent, but if we look at applications for unemployment, um, they're astronomical, and, um if there's a mechanism by which we can uh, get back to some type of normality sooner than later, it'll be a blip. But if not, you know, there'll be some long-term consequences of this. And again, there are devastating economic consequences, which I'll stay away from. I'll leave that to the economists to debate, but I will talk about the health consequences um, of unemployment. So there are, um, a couple of statistical models that I've looked over the last 30 years and I found for every 1% increase in unemployment, there's about, uh, for sustained unemployment, so we're talking about a six year time period, uh, there's about 39,000 deaths that occur from that. So uh, primarily a cardiovascular disease, presumably from stress, right. you know, a small percentage of that, about a thousand is uh, suicides. Um, so there actually are health consequences from, um, and I'm talking about uh, lethal, like mortality health consequences from um, the effects, the economic impact of what we're doing to slow the virus. Uh, And beyond that, just 
you know, the day to day, uh, people are dealing with depression and anxiety and, and these types of things that um, all stems out of the uncertainty that comes from you know, what we're dealing with. So if I can, you know, serve in some way to provide just a modicum of certainty for what we're looking at, and that helps somebody in some way, then I think that this, this will have been a, a you know, a great uh, interaction that we've had today. So based on that, um, like I said, what we're doing is working. The worldwide uh, and the hardest hit areas, so New York, Detroit, um, New Orleans, we've seen those uh, come to a, a plateau and then they're starting to come down. Um, so the question on everybody's mind is what's next? And so I'll talk about that globally and then we can talk about what specific things we can start doing um, to you know, continue to move forward and not take two steps back, as you mentioned, the, sec the concept of the second wave. Mm -hmm. So the, the end game for all of this is, um, as you mentioned, a vaccine and, and herd immunity, okay? Now, um, vaccines essentially, all that is, is they're taking a part of a virus, an inactive or a fragment, exposing it, um, injecting it into uh, a naive person's body, someone who's not seen the, the virus, and then causing an immune response so that if the person ever actually comes in contact with the virus, they've already got their immune system prepared to defeat it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, flu vaccine, uh, measles, mumps, all of these things that are either childhood or annual vaccines. Um, and those are the reasons that we don't see measles epidemics. We don't see people in iron lungs. We don't see polio. We don't see all of these things um, that are conditions that uh, as a human race, we've been able to figure out ways to defeat and we'll defeat this too. The average vaccine pathway, the average pathway to developing a vaccine is anywhere from three to 20 years. So it is a process. Mm -hmm. And even overcoming all of the regulatory hurdles, which, um, you know, Moderna and the NIH are currently doing vaccine trials in Seattle, but this is a phase one preclinical trial. Okay. So this is just a safety trial. All we're doing with this trial is to see if um, it's safe to see if the current model they have is safe. Then they have to do an efficacy trial and then they have to do a scale trial and then they have to mass produce. So um, optimistically we're looking at between 12 and 18 months. And, and just we... to be clear, th these trials are with, live patients are they not or are they doing this with uh with rats and other you know laboratory animals yeah so that's um uh there are animal trials that occur prior to actually uh doing human trials um you know i, I myself am a, uh, working on a phase two preclinical trial um for another agent that is going to protect against uh, ureter injuries you know that's in my field uh, but we're four years into it and, you know, we're looking at probably another two years before we can finish the human trials. So to answer your question, yes. So there are animal trials that occur for years and years before we're even ready to start human trials. And um, because uh, this, th there was a lot of um, work that was done on the original SARS virus. So the, the coronavirus, I mean, first of all, there's, th it's a family of like 39 different types of viruses, four of which cause the common cold. So this isn't like the idea of a coronavirus is not a new thing. I mean, this is a virus that's been around. The reason that this is different and the reason that um, the, 
the first SARS virus um, uh, was different is that um, it was transmitted from a, a, an animal to a human. And so um, it's never existed in humans before, this particular one. So nobody has natural immunity, which explains this uh, insidiousness, this, this rapid uh, spread that we're seeing around the world. Um, and that's, you know, uh, there are some debates that are going on right now if we're overreacting, if we're underreacting. Um, the initial prediction models based out of uh, what they saw in China, um, we're realizing those were wrong as far as how lethal the virus is. And um, that's not to say that um, all the measures that we aren't doing are exactly what we need to be doing. They are and they're working. Um, but which, which way were they wrong? Um, so the initial models were suggesting that the, the mortality rate would be around 3.7%. Uh, and just to give some background comparison, um, because a lot of people are comparing COVID to the flu, the, the, um, uh, the death rate or the mortality for the seasonal flu is about 0.1%. Okay, so one person in a thousand would die from the seasonal flu, whereas three in a hundred or 30 in a thousand will, will die from the COVID. Um, and again, uh, there are a lot of ways to manipulate the numbers. Um, certainly, we are not testing, okay? We're only testing people because it's a scarce resource. We don't have as many tests as we need to. And, you know, that that's probably a debate for another time. Why don't we have the resources? But um, the number of people that actually have the virus is realistically, we've seen estimates anywhere from three to 10 times what are being reported on the John Hopkins website. So if the, the, the denominator, if the bottom number is 10 times higher, um, then the number of people dying are actually way less as a percentage of the number of people that actually got infected. Correct. Um, so currently, the models are looking at maybe it's more like 1%. And understand, nobody's downplaying the significance of this. Every life is precious. Every life is valuable. And, and we need to try to do everything we can uh, to prevent and pre pre uh, infection from uh, spreading to the elderly and, and people with uh, health comorbidities that are most risk of uh, dying from the virus. And we also need to protect our frontline healthcare workers who are out there being exposed to this virus so that um, everybody doesn't get sick at once and overwhelm um, the healthcare system. We have to do all of those things. But what I am saying is um, we thought that uh, the, the mortality, the death rate, the, the kill rate, whatever you want to call it, um, was higher than it, it actually looks like it's turning out to be. Um, and typically you're going to have, you know, 10 people give different estimates. So the, the person that gets the worst estimate is probably not right. The person that gets the best estimate is probably not right. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, so there's some experts are saying that this is just going to be maybe, you know, 0.2% or twice as lethal as the flu. Some experts are saying, you know, holding out still that the, the, the death rate is around 3.7%. The truth is it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably closer to 1% and, and perhaps lower than that. Is that, um, is that supposedly factoring in the the people that have gotten it that haven't been tested? Are, are they factoring that broader number in? Yeah. So um, the people that think and, and suggest and propose that uh, this is a very lethal virus, like 3%, 10% death rate, um, are not counting um, the asymptomatic carriers. 
the people who are proposing that it's actually uh, closer to the death rate of a seasonal flu are certainly um, padding that number and, and making it larger than it is. So there's a lot of manipulation there. I mean, certainly this is real. The pandemic's real. Uh, people are getting sick. People are dying. Um, but we have to have a reasonable strategy moving forward so that we don't add insult to injury um, and permanently dis- derail the entire economy. Um, and I, I don't know if it's Goldman Sachs, but one of the big banks uh, had suggested that the total GDP was going to drop anywhere from 30 to 40 percent for 2020. And um, there's a way to come back out of this, uh, but we have to be smart about it. So what now? So at this point, um, you know, we're doing the right things. We really, um, we're just at that point where we plateaued and we're starting to come down. So if we open things up now, um, as you mentioned, that, that fear of the second wave will probably become a reality. So I don't know that, um, you know, we need to be coming out of this tomorrow. And as a nation, you know, it's difficult to compare the U.S. to Italy or um, to Sweden, which we can talk about because they have a totally different model of how they're handling the epidemic. Um, the U.S. is like 50 different little tiny countries because um, as we see, the peak of the virus is occurring and actually we're getting out past that in, in the East Coast, uh, New York, New Jersey area, uh, Detroit, New Orleans. Um, but many states are actually a couple weeks behind that. Um, the University of Washington put out a couple of, again, and these are models, these are prediction models. So they're only as good as the information that you feed, like what, what the ultimate prediction is. But in so much as that's what we've got to go on, um, not the world's greatest scientific evidence, but a model for what it's worth shows that um, the peak in majority of the country will occur this month. Um, again, uh, New York is already experiencing it. Uh, the rest of the country, um, and you can look at, it shows like a state by state if you, if you just you know, look at the University of Washington model, but um, the middle of the country kind of going through it towards the end of early May, uh, hitting their peak. And then once we start to see the death rate fall below 0.3% per um, a million, uh, then we're looking on into late May, June, and even July for some states. But I only say that to give some people an idea of what we're, this isn't forever, right? Um, people can start to feel hopeless because they feel this is going to go on forever. And, um, you know, the world's going to change forever and the world will change. Um, as we come out of this, I think we still need to adhere to a lot of the measures I think we're going to uh, continue, even as we get people back to work to start to do social distancing. Um, I believe that events that require people packed in the tight places, those are going to be some of the last things to come back online. Um, and we may be talking, you know, uh, six months before those types of activities can really be uh, engaged and, and um, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out a way to, to make all of those things work. But I, the, the fear is that, um, you know, uh, the U.S., um, I guess one of the thoughts with the Swedish model was um, they don't have the restrictions we have. They don't have the lockdowns. They don't have businesses closing. Um, and in some sense, they're, they're paying for that a little bit. We can go over the numbers later. But um, in the U.S., there's some fear that people are going to want to go exactly back to how the way things were. And that's going to uh, precipitate 
you know, the, the second wave. And, and there will be a second wave. I mean, there's no way that, that um, if you go from nobody touching, anybody coming into contact to, you know, maybe, um, or, you know, just healthcare workers, just essential um, people uh, that are caring for the economy. And then we let back the economy. We, we slowly open that door and maybe allow 10 times more people to go back to work. And then a hundred times more people to go back to work. We're going to see that. We just want to temper it. And then there will probably be a third wave, a fourth wave, but all of those will be way less significant um, because we did what we were supposed to do. We flattened the curve. We, we prevented um, an absolute total overwhelming of the entire healthcare system. Um, um, and we, we flattened that out. And the great thing about that is by and large, for the most part, we don't have healthcare systems that are having to choose who gets ventilator, right? In Italy, that you know that that happened, and in many parts of the world, that happened, um, and even in the states, somewhat that was happening. Um, but kudos to everybody for doing the right thing and preventing that. Um, now that we've done that, let's just make sure that we can kind of ride that down. And one of the effects of flattening the curve is we lengthen the curve, so it, it's going to take longer. Um, but for having done that, we'll save lives. So we do want to get back to work. Uh, we do want everybody to, you know, be able to um, have some sense of, of normality um, with the cautions of, you know, strict, you know, 20-second hand washing, don't touch commonly touched surfaces. Don't, it, it's a respiratory virus. It gets in through mucous membranes, eyes, nose, mouth. Don't touch your eyes, nose, mouth. And I think Wearing the mask, that recommendation was as much to prevent uh, asymptomatic shedders from uh, sending out the virus as it was to keep people from touching their face because it's, yeah. it's a hard habit to, to break. Um, but it's working. So I think you know, we may see some continued use of masks for the next couple months. We may see some continued social distancing. You know, the hand washing thing was just something we should have been done anyway. So that'll, that'll continue. Um, and we will, and we'll slowly get back to a sense of normal life, a sense of work. Um, and, you know, we, we do have to temper that loss of life, you know, with, um, you know, getting the country back online, getting everybody back to work. Nobody has an answer. So, I mean, I, I don't have an answer. The president doesn't have an answer. Fauci doesn't have an answer. Um, but the general time frame that we're looking at is going to be... Um, till we're over the worst of it, the rest of this month into June, um, and starting to kind of get back to some normal sense of, of uh, society as we go forward. And we have to understand too, this is gonna vary by areas, like super highly dense population areas. New York can have different restrictions than you know, um, the middle of Nevada or um, you know, some, some more rural areas. But, um, you know that that's kind of where we're at uh, now. As far as the the, um, the the vaccine, you know that that's a ways off, but we'll get there, and um, that'll help. Um, nobody had this virus in you know uh, December, okay? So now uh, there are um, certainly estimates how many percentage of the population has been infected. Um, and that could be anywhere because we really don't have an idea of how many asymptomatic carriers there are. 
uh, but let's say 20% of the population now has the virus. Okay, so we're going to get back to work and that's going to go up a little bit and we're just going to kind of follow the curve down with another smaller wave and another smaller wave. Um, and eventually, nobody knows, but the estimate is somewhere around 70% of the population would need to be exposed to the virus to develop a herd immunity. And the concept of that is um, right now, the infectiousness of this virus is uh, it's called the R-naught or the reproduction rate is uh, about three or you know, two and a half to three. So one person infects two and a half uh, to three other people. And then, so you go from one person to three, then three people to nine, then nine to 27. And you can see how it just logarithmically, astronomically increases. Um, as we get people who um, have been exposed, have developed immunity, and now are not gonna get infected, then that reproduction rate is gonna decline and decline. And um, when that falls below one, then it is actually seeing its tapering off. Um, and, and the reproduction rate is modifiable based on the factors that we're doing now, the things that we're doing, trying to um, uh, social distance and, um, and it, you know, so that it's going to decrease based on that. And it will also decrease as more people become immune. So that, I mean, that's the end game, but that, that's way out there um, as far as getting enough herd immunity and having a vaccine available. Um, in the short term, uh, like I said, these restrictions will probably be in place uh, and it's a state by state thing. Some people wanted a federal mandate, but honestly, that's probably not the best thing for the country. It should be a state by state mandate because um, different states are at different points in their, uh, in their curve. And so we'll start to see restrictions um, start to be lifted uh, with caution so that we can all get back to, um, you know, our normal lives without, uh, in, you know, uh, precipitating a dangerous second wave. Yeah. Um, what is your current role right now? Are you, is there anything that you're doing differently in, in your day to day that you weren't doing, you know, last year? Are, are you involved with this now or? Yeah. So um, our, I would describe, you know, frontline healthcare workers uh, would be um, our doctors our nurses um, and, you know, they're, they're secretarial staff. There are, uh, you know, custodians. These are people that have to go to work in a dangerous situation. And all of us owe a great degree of gratitude for them showing up to work and taking this, this beast, this uh, uninvited guest head on um, for all of our sakes. Um, those doctors and nurses and staff that work in the ICU. Um, I have an outpatient clinical uh, elective surgery practice. So um, all of uh, individuals, orthopedic surgery, uh, urology, all of these specialties, you know, we're just trying to do our part too. So we're seeing um, people for emergencies, we're, but we're not doing any elective surgery uh, because we don't want to use the personal protective equipment that might be needed, uh, you know, to deal with future waves of the virus. Um, we don't want to expose patients who otherwise wouldn't need to be exposed uh, to the virus. And if they're an asymptomatic carrier, we don't want to um, allow them to spread and infect healthcare workers. So the, you know, those are the, the, the considerations that we have right now. Um, now, one of the other elements of getting us back online is going to be uh, the mass scaling and availability of testing kits. And there's two types of tests, which I think bear, you know, 
explanation. So the one test would be just a, a, a PCR or a genetic uh, RNA test. Um, and essentially what this is, is it's a test that's drawn from a nasopharyngeal swab. Um, that's what they're doing now. And essentially <clears throat> it um, binds, there's a, an antibody that you use to bind one of the pieces of RNA of, of, that's specific to this virus. So it's not gonna test positive for the common cold coronavirus or SARS-1 or anything like that. It's specific for this virus. So it's gonna bind that virus and um, then it has to be, uh, that viral particle has to be amplified multiple times. And this process takes two to five days. So it's a very slow process. So we don't have enough test kits available and the results take a long time. But all it really does is it tells us in this moment in time, right now, does this individual have viral particles and they're shedding and, and therefore contagious. Um, what, we're what has been developed, it's just not um, mass produced and readily available, is an IgG, IgM antibody test. So um, you can either test for the virus itself or you can test for the host's immune response to the virus. And you actually need both. So the first one just says, does this guy have this virus in his body right now? The second one says, <clears throat> has this individual uh, responded to the virus? And we look at uh, uh, IgG and IgM. So IgM is the first, uh, element of the immune system that responds and is produced in response to the virus and then IgG. IgG comes on later. So how is this clinically relevant? What is, how, how, does this, how is this going to help us move forward? So in this test, if you have the IgG positive, then that's going to mean that, uh, I'm sorry, the IgM positive, the first one, that means you currently have the virus. You're currently infected and you're probably able to spread it and it's early on. If you have IgG and IgM, it means you're probably in the middle of this virus. Understanding um, that the incubation period is anywhere from two to five days, and the uh, contagion period is anywhere from you know five to 14 days, although there have been some cases that have gone on for longer. Now, if your test comes back and it's IgM only, then what that means is you've been exposed, you've developed antibodies, and you've cleared it. Um, now, if you couple that with a DNA test, then you're, then you can be absolutely certain the DNA test is negative. There's no virus in your body. Your IgG, IgG is positive. Then you're an individual who, um, has been exposed. And frankly, you should be able to go back to work and, you know, be a productive member of society without uh, understanding that that person wouldn't be a risk for, um, you know, spreading and in our, in our world, how that would work. Cause these tests are much more rapid. Um, these tests can be done probably in about 15 minutes, um, optimistically, maybe up to an hour. How if long are the, how long are the antibodies, um, in the body? Is that something you could test, you know, 10 years from now and still see that or how long do those Absolutely. Yeah. So the IgM is a acute respondent. So that'll be there fighting off the, the virus in the short term. And then when the body kind of gets a handle on it and it no longer needs the IgM, that'll kind of taper off. And then the IgG will, will kind of, um, they'll both be around for a while simultaneously. IgM will taper off. And then IgG will be there um, technically for life, but it, I mean, it should be there for a long period of time. Um, 
unless there's some other you know autoimmune issue or something that prevents that but um, that's something that we can test uh, throughout the duration of this process to understand who's not susceptible who's susceptible makes but sense I think that's going to be a very helpful key component of us figuring out how to get you know uh, everybody back to work back to their daily lives do we have any indication yet on if you have had it before how how much less significant it might be if you were to contract it again? Um, and so there's probably two answers to that question. Um, you know, it's interesting with, uh, cause everything's new with this, this epidemic. And so there are things that people hold as absolute certainties one day and the next day it's like, Oh no, no, that's not true at all. So um, early on we did uh, a vlog where we were talking about um, essentially uh, young people and, and specifically people under nine are basically bulletproof. Like they're totally immune. No one died from this. Um, and then thank God somewhere in late March, you know, there was one infant, I think it was in Indiana that, that died with COVID. I mean, was it because of COVID? It's hard to know. Right. Then, you know, there's a hole that gets poked in that theory. So it's like, okay, so are we susceptible? And I just bring that back to the question, I had COVID, can I get it again? Well, you know, um, viruses are continually um, mutating. Um, and, I and I would say that it is possible, but it's not the rule, right? Just because it happened doesn't mean that it is a likely thing to happen. So for the most part, uh, as with all infectious disease, once we develop um, our immune response to it, um, and you know, the seasonal flu comes every year, uh, it, mutates and then you know, you're exposed again and the vaccines uh, kind of help prepare our body for it. They don't always get it right, um, but um, you're going to attenuate that response. So if you were to get it again, um, probably a much less severe reaction than the first time. And, you know, it's, there, there's some discussion among epidemiologists, immunologists that, you know, this could be just like the seasonal flu um, and it could come back every year. Um, but at that point, we would kind of just treat it like the regular seasonal flu. We'll develop another vaccine, and and because it will not be novel, we'll all have been exposed to it before. Um, it, there won't be this type of response to it. Can I ask a, a dumb question? Why does the flu come back every season? Like what? What? Have yeah, you for that exact uh, for that exact reason is that it mutates. So um, these. Uh, but so, but so, so perfectly during, you know, on an annual basis. I mean, it's so, why, why is it not mutating and, and we get it a third, you know, three months from now and then 12 months oh, later? Question. Yeah. So specifically for the flu, why does the flu behave like it does is in cold months, people are huddled together. So the Northern hemisphere uh, in that November through March, that's our, that's our flu season. And, you know, in the Southern hemisphere, it's the opposite. Right. Um, so, it's just human behavior uh, driven by climate that we're all going to be huddled together. And so there's, you know, less kind of social distancing from that. Um, also certain viruses and specifically flu virus um, cannot survive outside its host for very long in warmer weather. Um, that may have something to do with um, uh, there's a protective layer that surrounds the virus and it just doesn't survive. Um, and, and, 
that's a you know that, that's a very good point uh, that you're making because a lot of there's a lot of question around will this virus will this coronavirus will this survive in warmer climates is that going to be to our advantage actually um, as the United States at least in countries in the north northern hemisphere as we enter in hotter summer months is that going to um, be another factor that reduces that reproductivity rate okay right. so we're going to drop that. And nobody knows. <laughs> the thought is that yes, I mean, it's a virus that's similar to some of these other viruses, cold and flu, other coronaviruses that behave that way. Um, so the hope certainly is yes, that will, um, that will negatively affect that and, and prevent that summertime transmission. And, uh, you know, that, that really, if we're lucky and, and we come out of it in, in a way, we may squash this thing in the summer and avoid any second and third and fourth waves um and then you know as we come back around in november and december you know we may see a resurgence at that time but but to answer your question the cyclicity the seasonal patterns are essentially just related to human behavior and the survivability of the virus based on different temperatures that makes sense i had uh on the podcast a little while ago a blood chemist um gary brecca who mentioned that some of that seasonal nature is due to also the um the lack of vitamin D that people get in the, you know, more, the more Northern you go, the less sunlight you get. Um, and uh, he supplements, he often will recommend that his patients supplement with vitamin D. And I've noticed personally, just myself, um, you know, moods and uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a warm weather guy, like put me down in Florida and I'm, I'm way happier than I am sitting here in St. Louis in the cold, you know, dreary, rainy, cloudy months. Um, but uh, I was doing vitamin D this, this winter and I noticed a considerable difference, not just in my mood, but it also my, uh, it's seemingly in my immune system because I didn't catch anything. I didn't, whatever. And I also noticed it with my son who is dealing, who had dealt with seasonal, um, coughing spurts. And, um, and so, we, you know, he was taking the vitamin D. So I'd love to get your opinion on that specifically, but then also just in general, what can we be thinking about in terms of immunity and, and how do we maybe build up a stronger defense to this? Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually a perfect question here um, because um, there's a lot of talk about uh, a cure or a treatment. And right now, um, the treatment is supportive care. It's just fluids, rest, Tylenol, um, you know, and, and uh, the, the FDA approved, the list of FDA approved pharmacologic treatments for coronavirus is zero, nothing, okay? And then there's a number of other things that um, uh, we, we can talk about at the end if we have time for treatments, but I think the, the more important, the more germane issue is what you just brought up is, what can we do? Um, so there's preventive, right? So preventive, stay away from sick people, um, wear a mask, hand washing, that's preventive. And then how about um, immune modulation? What can we do to give ourselves uh, the best possible chance at fighting this virus? So in general, um, as with all infectious diseases and viruses, if we have a strong immune system and the virus is weak, we're probably going to win and it's probably not going to be much of a symptom at all. If um, the virus is very strong and we have a weak immune system, we're, we're going to be in for, you know, uh, a tough, a tough go at it. And if we're strong and the virus is strong, then, you know, they just kind of fight it out. So um, how can we augment and support that? So really the, the tenants, the, the cornerstones are just going to be um, getting good rest. So eight, recommendations eight hours of sleep a night, right? 
um, exercise. Uh, you, know, you need to stimulate your body. Um, and the current recommendation is 30 minutes, seven days a week, no exceptions. Okay. So, you know, get on a treadmill or just, you know, there, there are so many posts right now on social media about how to exercise in your house. And, and, uh, and, and for what it's worth, you know, if we try to look for the good in this, it's, you know, let's take this as an opportunity to form good habits. And, and so I, for one, I, you know, had a hard time getting to an exercise regimen, but, but during this time, you know, since I have more time, you know, 30 minutes, every single day, no exceptions. So rest, exercise, nutrition, so um, I'm not a nutrition expert. Uh, there are a million different people with a million different opinions, but what we can say is um, you want to get those vitamins uh, from natural food sources. So we want to get vitamin D, we want to get vitamin C, um, B12, all of these. And, and most of what you need, your body actually needs the, the daily recommended, you can get from your diet. So six servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Um, there are certain you know, proponents for a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet. Um, I think everybody agrees there's some anti-inflammatory properties that go along with that. Although um, it's not just meat is bad, plants are good. It's what type of meat are you consuming? Um, again, that's a conversation for another time, but make sure you're getting good nutrition. And then um, we can look at supplementation. So if you're doing the first three things right, then you probably don't need supplementation. Right. But that being said, there is some evidence um, that taking elevated doses of vitamin C can reduce the duration of a common cold by about a day. So what, what would be an increase? So about, you know, a thousand, um, you know, you, you can consume vitamin C, your body will metabolize it and, you know, whatever it can't metabolize, you're just going to excrete. So it's not, you know, um, you, you can't take 10,000, you know, units of vitamin C and, and suppose that that's going to help you, but anywhere from a, a thousand to 2000 vitamin D is a very, um, I think underdiagnosed and, um, untreated issue. Uh, so you want to have about 30 nanograms per milliliter should be your, uh, your test anything above that would be a good vitamin D level in most reference labs. Um, now that being said, and it's interesting because you would expect that people in the Sun Belt, right, would be getting way more levels, but um, we don't know the reasons exactly why, but they actually have a lower vitamin D level on average than some of the Northern states. Um, it may be, you know, loaded on sunblock or it's too hot to stay inside, who knows. Um, but it, it, it's worth a consideration for most people. And it's certainly, even without knowing your levels, it's certainly worth a supplementation. You can take a thousand international units per day um, and if you're deficient, let's say you're in the twenties, um, you know, I've seen levels in the low teens, you need a, a, a bigger amount of supplementation. So 10,000 units, um, you know, two or three times a week for a three month period, and then go back to maintenance of, you know, a thousand units, uh, a day. Um, what's, and then, what's the best you know, way, sorry, what's the best way to get a, a report card on that? Is it, a, is it a blood sample? Is it a, is there another way to, to, to see where you're at on that? How, how does somebody self-test so that they can understand what they actually need to supplement with? Yeah. So there's, there's, uh, to my knowledge, there's no, um, home tests that are available to check your different vitamin levels. Um, this is going to be like a lab, um, uh, test where you're going to actually have to get your blood drawn and, you know, doctor's orders, uh, get your blood drawn and then the lab will evaluate that. And, um, 
And, and, you know, interestingly, like, so then you have to get your results. We've been doing this telemedicine thing, which has, you know, been such a, an interesting uh, uh, transition in that, um, you know, we just get online and it's a HIPAA protected, you know, medium, but it's kind of like a Zoom call. And, you know, patients log in, I go over the results and then they're on their way. So they don't come into the office and wait, you know, an hour and, uh, you know, basically have to plan their whole day around it. We just do it. So, you know, it's maybe another good thing that's coming out of this is we're going to, healthcare is going to be different. The way that we, we uh, process some things is going to be different coming out of this. Um, but to answer your question, it has to be, you know, a doctor's order, blood test. Um, but I think most people that we test anyway are going to end up having some deficiency. Um, you really can't become toxic on vitamin D, vitamin C, um, vitamin E, perhaps there's some toxicity level that can come with that. But um, and again, within reason, you can start to do supplements for this. Um, so vitamin E, 1,000 a day, 1,000 to 2,000 vitamin C, um, you know, B12, a lot of people are deficient in B12, B6. Um, but really, I mean, you, you know, you want to get a balanced diet. You want to have, um, you know, uh, be getting some type of omega-3, uh, 6 and 9 from the foods that you're eating, or you can, you know, get a, a supplement for that as well. Um, and, you know, just balance that amount of um, the building blocks, the elements, carbohydrates, protein, and there's a million different diets, and I'm not going to kind of get into that, but you want to balance it. You want to make sure you're getting um, these elements that you need, the vitamins that we're talking about and other minerals, just from fresh fruits and vegetables, six servings a day. So to summarize all that, you know, rest, um, uh, exercise, balanced diet, you could do some uh, supplementation for immune support. And uh, zinc was, is another big one that um, has actually, there's uh, evidence, there's data that shows that actually improves and shortens the duration of a common cold. So that's another good one that you could look at. Um, and then, you know, there's a million other, um, you know, uh, elderberry, echinacea, lemon tea, all these things that um, there's not a lot of evidence for, but um, they're certainly not going to hurt and they may be helpful. So, um, you know, I'm all for it. Um, you know, if, you, if, if uh, people think that that's going to be uh, helpful for them. Um, but the evidence-based ones are going to be, um, you know, the vitamin C and the zinc. Um, and beyond that, um, you know, stress, that, that's probably one of the big ones that we're not, um, people aren't necessarily talking about. It's probably not getting as much recognition as it should, because this is a very stressful situation for everybody. And um, how do you mitigate stress? Um, you know, I wish I had an answer. And, and some people will pharmacologically medicate for that, which, um, I mean, no one, no one has a Prozac deficiency, right? So it's not that we're giving you something that you're missing it's just that we're covering up that um that symptom that disease so and if that's necessary see your doctor get that done to help you get to the point where you don't need it anymore but um really it's dealing with whatever the source of stress or fear is in your life and you know hopefully if we can tell people look this has a beginning a middle and an end we're in the middle uh we're going to get through this um you know uh, we, this is not the first new disease we've had, right? I mean, it seems like every couple of years we get our Ebola, we get our SARS, we get our MERS, we get our Zika. Um, you know, human ingenuity, I will, I will take every time over novel new disease. And so we're going to, we're going to beat this and, um, let's stay strong and stay healthy. Um, I will say that, 
um, you know, there is some benefit to meditation. Again, this is clinically proven benefit. It's been shown as a John Hopkins study that shows it reduces blood pressure uh, just five minutes a day. So um, our minds are just designed to always look for the danger, the saber-toothed tiger. That's just, you know, our 10 million old year old brain telling us, you know, what, what we need to be fearful of. And so to just take five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes out of your day to let your mind rest. And, you know, you can say, I'm going to do that when I sleep. Well, your mind's actually very active in sleep too. So sometimes you actually need to actively just kind of uh, separate yourself. And it really helps, I think, to get some perspective on things. Do you personally practice meditation or, or mindfulness in that way? Yeah, so I've had a, a kind of a mindfulness journey started about 10 years ago where, you know, I had three full-time jobs, you know, surgeon, uh, public speaker, uh, trying to get, you know, running my own business, trying to get all these things going and working 100 hours a week. And it just, it's easy to get burnt out. And so, um, you know, somebody's doing it. You see people that are highly effective. They're working as many hours as, as you are or more and they're doing well. So you kind of model, you model people that are doing things successfully. And, and it's been a long journey. And, you know, there, for me, there's been some skepticism about the practice and the concept. I think having scientific evidence was, was huge. So it kind of moved away from, um, you know, more of a, you know, hippie mystic kind of practice to a, you know, evidence-based proven, uh, you know, clinically effective treatment basically. Um, and, you know, I, for what it's worth, uh, Dan Harris wrote a book, 10% Happier, and uh, a follow-up book called, uh, uh, I think it's called Meditation for the Fidgety Skeptic. So, you know, <laughs> for someone that kind of, you know, approaches it with a, with a modicum of skepticism, I, I found that that was a, a very uh, welcome read. And hey, we've got all more, we've all got more time now. So when you're done with Tiger King, you know, just pick up a book, you know, there's another good habit. You know, read 20 minutes every night before you go to bed rather than letting all this craziness from the media. Um, and that's another thing, you know, put yourself on a limit, you know, for you know, fear and anxiety reduction, you know, limit yourself to maybe half an hour a day of, you know, looking, watching the news, watching, um, you know, reading all the, uh, predictions because it's just clickbait. I mean, you know, the news these days is less about information and more about, you know, trying to drive numbers. And so they're going to say whatever uh, over the top thing they have to say to get you to click the link to watch the yes. thing. And it may not, it may not necessarily be entirely true. And so, um, you know, I think one of the nice things because I've seen a lot of physicians, um, you know, coming out and, and trying to provide actual uh, evidence-based clinical um, uh, information to kind of combat some of the, uh, should we say, agenda-driven um, misinformation out there. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's another, there's, there's always good in every situation. We just have to right. find it, focus on that. Cause we just focus on the negative every day. That, that's gonna, that, there's no benefit from that. We're just gonna, you know, uh, feed our own fears and anxieties. And um, a year from now, you know, a year and a half, wh whatever timeline you want to look at, this will all be done. And you can look back at this and say, I either, you know, developed a new skill, developed a new habit, became a better person, uh, used my time effectively, or, you know, I, I let fear consume me and, and uh, I, I regret that. I regret that decision. I wish I would have spent my time more productively. So uh, we have a 
So I, I would suggest we do the former. Hundred percent. The uh, the the protocol that I've adapted over the last several years, and it's been it's been super helpful for me personally. Is uh, and actually, I would say even within the last few months, is what information is would come in that would change my actual behavior. Is is this a uh, you know is this whole um, pandemic uh, an actual threat by China? Is it uh, you know are they building nuclear weapons? Is this like Maybe, I don't know, maybe that could all be true. How is that going to change my daily, my daily behavior? Now, is it helpful to be somewhat aware of it? Sure, of course. But I, right now, I just look at what data and information will actually change my course of my day. And, and if it doesn't, what, what use does it have? And so that to me has been a little protective barrier that I've adapted that it's, it's allowed me to sort of stay mentally clear and not... Um, not get so influenced by all the, the bullshit that's out there. Cause it really, yeah, you said it very eloquently, but um, they're selling a narrative. You have to understand that they're selling a product. Their product is, is a narrative and, and the narrative coincides with the different pockets of people's narratives that we have in the country. And you have to understand that this isn't, they're not the honest brokers of truth that they at least seem to be when I grew up, it seemed that seemed to be at least the intent by most uh news agencies, but we're not in well, I, right now. And I think that, and I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it bears mentioning, um, you know, because uh, a lot of this is just misinformation and overreaction. And, um, you know, I think we can all agree that we're all going to get through this. And so um, let, let's see it for what it is, right? Not worse than it is. And then, um, you know, have a plan. And as you said, if, you know, there's enough suffering in this world to be depressed every day if you focus on it. So um, find useful information. And if it doesn't deviate you from your course, your plan, it doesn't affect you, in, you know, personally and individually, um, you, know, uh, you know, stay on that path. Stay on that path of whatever that is, self-improvement, enlightenment, helping others, whatever that is, whatever, you know, gives you purpose, stay on that plan. Um. Perhaps the most important question of the day, when do we get toilet paper back? Oh, my gosh. Because so, the Chipotle napkins are pretty rough, man. The, the recycled uh, paper is not, it's not uh, um, super comfortable. Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a challenge. One, one of our first uh, vlogs we did on this um, with a colleague of mine, Dr. Goldstein, who's an ER doc, we, we talked about that jokingly. And and, uh, you know, he said, well, you know, it's not a GI virus. Stop buying toilet paper. You know, it's a, it's a respiratory virus. Can have some GI effects. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've looked into it a little bit. It is a supply chain issue. Um, there's just not an unlimited number of uh, providers that, that source this. And so um, everybody's focusing on making masks, making gowns, making ventilators. Uh, and it's just not, you know, one of those, it's at, a, it's at the bottom of the pile, I guess, you know, no pun intended, but, uh, but uh, I think it's bidet time, to be honest. I think this might be the push that America finally, finally needs uh, to move in that direction. So. Yeah, it's just funny because I've gone into the store a few times because the supplies are getting low in the house and it's like, you know, and I just laugh because it's like, obviously we'll figure something out, but I finally ordered something on Amazon and it was like estimated shipping delivery is 45 days out. I was like, Oh man, this is going to be serious. Um, but you know, obviously knock on wood, that's, that's the worst of my problems at the moment. Um, 
I, uh, before I let you go, I, I just, I'm so curious uh, about what you do with the robotic surgery um, mm -hmm. and the future of medicine. I, I, can you explain to the, I saw some of the videos online, so I have a general idea as, as to what that is, but um, can you explain what that is real quick and, and what you do? Cause it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. So, and uh, thanks for, thanks for asking. I, um, it's a passion. You know, I, um, graduated residency in uh, Cleveland Clinic and then my fellowship in New York. And as soon as I got into practice, um, I was doing everything through little keyhole incisions with what's called laparoscopy. So this is basically, you just have handheld camera and handheld um, like an instrument, which is a, a long cylinder with a scissors or something on the end of it. And you use these tools to operate. And, um, you know, uh, the, the alternative to that is making an open incision like you would think of like a c-section scar or kind of like an up and down 12 centimeter you know incision from the pubic bone to the to the belly button um, the problem with open surgery is is just a long recovery it's just a very painful long recovery there's more blood loss more blood transfusions so being able to do things through little tiny incisions uh, really changed the game and in fact statistically has um, uh, you're three times more likely to have complications and even uh, death from, from an open incision than you, fortunately death is rare, but uh, from an open incision you are from little tiny incisions. So what's the next step? What's the next evolution of that? And that's robotic surgery. So um, really it's just computer assisted surgery. And if you think about it, we live computer assisted lives. We have our little, um, you know, uh, computer in our hand that we're checking our schedules. We're, you know, social media, do, do whatever. But um, imagine life 10 years ago without, you know, an iPhone. Um, it's hard. It's hard to imagine that. And um, in today's uh, ORs, it's hard to imagine an OR without a robot. And so essentially, it is a command control system where the surgeon sits at a console and peers into um, kind of like an Oculus, but it's on, a, it's on a stand and you see in 3D vision inside the patient's abdomen uh, through the camera. And the robot itself is, is like a giant metal marionette that holds all of the instruments in the camera. So instead of the surgeon themselves standing at the bedside holding these instruments, um, we're resting comfortably at a surgeon console. And uh, I mean, that's uh, one of the kind of uh, untold benefits is the ergonomic benefit for the surgeon. We're going to, you know, allow our surgeons to last 10 years longer because they're not, you know, having that constant physical stress from holding heavy instruments. So um, what does a computer do uh, for your schedule, for your email, for whatever? It, it just makes things faster, right? Faster, more precise. And that's all the surgical robot does. It makes things faster and more precise. Um, now there's a learning curve. So, you know, if I hand you know, a four-year-old, uh, an iPhone, they may not know how to use it right away. So there's a learning curve. And but once uh, uh, our professionals, uh, surgeons, they get through that, um, you know, certainly there's the opportunity to use the technology uh, to the, to the uh, full potential and to make things, you know, faster, um, less blood loss, uh, less chance of having to make that open incision in a, in a crisis because you have more control. Um, Are you and, in the same room with the patient? Yeah, I mean, so the way that it's set up now, we're in the same room, although there's no reason that you have to be. Um, there's certainly been done uh, cases where, um, and then this was actually all developed out of a military DARPA grant 20 years ago where they wanted to have a robot on the battlefield doing surgery as opposed to, you know, uh, mm. someone 
invested 30 years in an education, you know, so um, wow. but what's grown out of that, you know, is today's modern, you know, robot systems, but someone could be, and someone has been at the Cleveland Clinic operating on a patient in Dubai. I mean, um, the main reason that that doesn't happen more often is just, you know, federal and, and state regulatory, you know, uh, agencies, but that really is the future. I mean, if you think about it, um, it, it really just makes sense to have, you know, uh, an, you know, fewer people that are uh, more specifically trained that, um, you know, someone's, you know, let's say in, in uh, Houston and um, there are 10 small cities around the state, rather than having that surgeon go to all those places, they just walk up to the console and they just do one surgery after another in the different cities. So, uh, and ultimately long-term view, uh, 10, 15 years, um, you know, 10, and we take it, a step back 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have self-driving cars, right? But it was an automation creep. So, you know, one day you have adaptive cruise control. The next day you have rain sensing wipers. The next day you have, you know, uh, cars that can sense the lanes with cameras everywhere. Um, and it will be that way too. It will be an automation creep. And ultimately, um, I mean, because computers can always do uh, uh, algorithmic um uh, procedures better than a human, more precisely. Computers will always be able to do that more precisely. They're not good at adapting yet, but when we integrate uh, artificial intelligence uh, and deep thought into the uh, robotic platforms, eventually they will, and they will be able to adapt and do things and learn from you know the database of 400 million surgeries that are all recorded they'll be able to learn and adapt. And then you'll just have the surgeon captain and they'll be watching, you know, the robots during the surgery. Um, but, you know, this is, this is long. Um, but right now it just is a better way, more ergonomic for the surgeon, better for the patient because there's, you know, uh, the least invasive and less blood loss, you know, patients going home the same day. Now they used to be in the hospital for three, four days. So. Wow. That's amazing. It's for anybody that's listening and that's curious about this. I recommend you checking out some of the videos uh, online because it's it's mind blowing to see um, if you're not exposed to that as I am on a on a you know daily basis. But um, the work you do is incredible, uh, Richard. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, and your wisdom. Do you have? Uh, are you open if somebody wanted to contact you and follow up and ask questions about this or anything like that? Is there a place that they can get a hold of you? Yeah. Absolutely. So um, we have our website is just farnammd.com, F-A-R-N-A-M-M-D.com. And um, all the contact information, uh, our website, there's a, a link to the uh, YouTube channel. And, um, you know, in this crisis, we've been doing Facebook lives. I'm going to do one here in about 10, 15 minutes, um, just as an outreach, you know, because people do feel alone, they feel isolated. And, you know, if I can do anything that kind of lets people know that they're not you know, they're not alone. We, we can still reach out and, and connect. Um, but any of those means, we'd be happy to talk to anybody. Yeah, it's so helpful. I mean, with, with the doctors and the nurses on, uh, on the front lines, I mean, their, their time and energy is being put into that. So your expertise and wisdom and the time that you have to be able to share with the public is super helpful and, and uh, keeps people uh, even keeled, I think. So again, thank you so much for your, for your input, Richard. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate you having me come on today. Excellent. Thank you.